leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Evaluate Pharma in its latest World Preview report is projecting solid growth for prescription drug sales through 2022. Driving the growth is both the new products expected to come to market during that time and the industry's embrace of orphan drugs, the source of half of that growth. We spoke to Antonio Lervellino, head of forecasting for Evaluate, about the new report the growing number of drug approvals, and the challenges drug makers face that could alter the outlook for the industry. Antonio, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. We're going to discuss Evaluate Pharma's new world preview report, what's driving growth of pharmaceutical sales, and the threats that are lurking out there. Let's start with the big picture. Stock prices took a hit. Venture financing, the IPO market have been affected. But rather than being the end of good times, your report is generally upbeat. What kind of growth are you forecasting? And what's the case for continued growth in drug sales? Well, I mean, based on the sales price consensus, uh, we, we foresee the farm industry basically growing for 6.3% cadre. It's an underlying growth rate um, through 2022. I think there are two um, main factors in driving this growth. Number one is seeing some uh, health innovation, product innovation coming through the pipeline. Uh, and the second one, I think it's uh, been some of the setbacks in the past. Uh, I think there's been ongoing and increasing collaboration from uh, between pharma companies as well as regulators to actually come out with the right criteria to design uh, clinical trials. So I think also the pace at which uh, pharmaceutical products are getting developed and come to market much faster compared to the compared to what we've seen in the past. Uh, I think those definitely driving two of the major factors. And obviously, once uh, the clinical trials uh, in design according to the specification, the endpoints are regulators. I think also seeing pharma companies embedding market access here more and more in their clinical trial strategy. Uh, I think that's definitely um, it, it's reflected in the uh, in the record number of FDA approvals that we have witnessed in, uh, in the U.S. We have 66 uh, new approvals in uh, 2016, uh, beating the record of uh, 50 approvals in 2014. And also, what is worth noting is that some of these approvals came out with uh, a great therapy designation, and the consensus focus for most of these approvals. And I'm thinking about the Optivo, the um, the Abrams from Pfizer. Those came with a quite hefty um, sales prediction. So we believe that kind of reflects um, uh, 
uh, health innovation pharmaceutical product companies have been able to generate over the past five years. It's been, in a way, a period of restructuring for many R&D organizations that come aboard. This burst of, of approvals in the 50, 55 range, I mean, for the longest time, we were living with an average of 27 FDA approvals a year. Is this a, a long-term change you think we're going to see continue going forward? What does the pipeline suggest? I believe so. I mean, I think pharmaceutical companies have been able to restructure away clinical strategies trying to target um, more niche populations because often that's what they have been asking for several years. And it took some time because obviously innovation cycle in the pharmaceutical industry takes take some time to readjust. Um, I think they have been asking for this for the last five to ten years. And now we're finally seeing some interesting development. I mean, I think a lot of one of the world, I think that the way um, Russia has been developing realism on the previous in multiple sclerosis. I think it's quite a smart uh, development strategy because aside from tapping into the very competitive relaxation uh, in the multiple sclerosis market, that has been able to larger and many primary progressive multiple sclerosis. I think that that is just one example, but I think we've seen many more of those examples. So we see this, uh, this being a trend uh, going forward, whether it's going to maintain uh, this have some of a very positive trend uh, um, topping out the previous year record. But uh, that's really very much kind of uh, the volume of actual products and partner of these for highlighting actually the, the value and the quality of the, of the new innovations that can come to the market and the benefit that we bring to patients as well. You described these increased FDA approvals with the the term productivity gains, but do we know, are we actually seeing productivity gains in terms of reducing the cost or time to market? Uh, we, we don't have a specific as of yet. Uh, we know that I think one pharmaceutical company comes to phase three. I think generally the, the products that are brought on phase three development uh, tend to have higher chances of approval, at least, uh, at least in the U.S. Uh, so definitely this is something that, um, that we will see happening. I think that this picture doesn't necessarily capture another key, um, key shift in the pharmaceutical landscape, which is what happens after regulatory approval, uh, which is about one potentially one of the breaks in the, one of the downsides in, we, in the outlook that we foresee after 2022. Um, I think the U.S. is probably um, some, somehow of a laggard in embracing some of the market access tools uh, compared to the European um, the European market. Uh, uh, I mean, recently we've seen that some continent managers um, increasingly with exclusions of products which are not included to formularies that have been much more selective on um, which cost they're willing to fund. Uh, and even products which came to the market with uh, in high expectations, uh, such as Entrestor, inhibitors in the cholesterol space, uh, um, I mean, the, the uptake during the first 12 18 months has been much, much below what the expectations were. This primarily due to market access. I mean, the products were bringing some level of innovation incremental benefits, but the price then was just way above what the system could afford. So there was some niche or exclusive You You expect half of the sales increases in the next five years to come from R&D projects. Does that suggest growth will be rather uneven from company to company? Yeah, and I think that will also, you know, will, will potentially um, determine some of the, you know, the, the, the merger and acquisition we'll see coming forward because 
if the average growth that we foresee is about 20%, um, we see the top 25 conference growing an average below that figure. So most of the growth will come from emerging players in the market, companies with a couple of assets in their top and their portfolio. So, I mean, one point in case is either snapping um, motivation uh, and, and kind of leading product standard. So, obviously, you know, smaller players with more specialized niche pipeline uh, will be still under the radar of bigger companies. You, you mentioned the acquisition of motivation. Oncology continues to be the, the leading indication. What role do you expect immunotherapies to have on driving this area? In terms of growth, well, obviously, you know, to think of the Kituda and Omnivigo primarily, uh, those those we expect to be the key product um, in the in the future outlook. I mean, Omnivigo is expected to be, um, if not the top selling product, one of the top selling products in the next few years. But clearly, that the recent setback um, on the not so much cancer indication uh, might potentially affect the future outlook. Product, uh, but from a technological standpoint, from an innovation standpoint, we clearly see a lot of innovation happening with the DL1 inhibitors. So especially, uh, I think it's the combination there. It's not only necessarily driven by the more therapy use of immunotherapies, uh, uh, but primarily, I believe, the combination use, which obviously will raise the question about the affordability and, and the cost of these uh, complex therapeutic uh, regimens. What, one of the things you note is that Roche has now edged past Novartis as the number one drug com- company. But yeah. interestingly enough, in part, this is because of what you call the more unconventional parts of its pipeline. Can, can you explain? Uh, sure. I mean, it's actually quite interesting to say that the portfolio strategy is taking shape of Roche. Um, because historically, we see Roche primarily being driven by oncology innovation, whereas the uh, Yes, we do have oncology uh, innovations and growth expected uh, coming up in Roche. And if you think about the project, uh, the Gaziva, uh, although the growth is, is heavily dependent on success of upcoming trials, uh, so the key innovations come from uh, you know, multiple sclerosis therapy, uh, for Lidumaba, or from the, you know, other uh, experimentaries like Nemophilia, they invest a lot with Encizumab and then you also, there's also a lot of attention to Nesmab in the quite challenging therapy of the Summer. Um, so I think, you know, it's quite an interesting proposition, but there's a lot of risk, you know, venturing out to four different areas. It's not been always successful. Also for us in the past, so that, that's a lot of curiosity. Oncology is still a bit of a, um, there's a lot of promise, of course, but um, there's a lot of challenge coming up in biotechnology, probably the outlook at the moment is quite what one of the trends that's continued in recent years, which you alluded to earlier, is the industry's embrace of orphan drugs. What's driven that, and, and how do you see orphan drugs contributing to the industry's overall growth uh, in the next couple of years? Um, it will continue. This, uh, this is really a key component of uh, any new or new strategy. It's really finding those niche uh, of a net needs, so very specific patient population with the amenities easier to prove that there is incremental benefit pharmaceutical companies can offer. And a new technology will enable a pharmaceutical company to actually target a specific patient population. So I do believe that the investment in the rare diseases and often in Asia will continue to grow. Um, I think the 
moment, uh, the, the attention on the pair size value less scale compared to other figure indications are a lot of things, but I think going forward, we might expect more attention from the, uh, from the pair side. Though you're expecting growth across all categories, I think one of the surprises is that the area of slowest growth is expected to be antivirals after seeing you know, the, the surge we've had there with the new hepatitis C treatments. What What's happening in that category? Well, I think it's also, you know, you need to look at the starting point. You know, antivirals are, you know, starting point, basically, what are going about in the other FD therapies that we've seen over the last, uh, in a two or three years. So I think the current level is being inflated by this uh, tremendous innovation we've seen in, in the market over the last three years. But clearly, uh, because we're talking about um, therapeutic options that cure or partially cure disease. So obviously there is a, a price competition element, but there's also a, a patient stock basically uh, reducing over time. Um, but I think that the pricing uh, competition is something that's been, that's been affecting Gilead in uh, time, and uh, we'll see this growing as, as new therapies come to market. So I think it's just more kind of uh, antibiotics will normalize around the uh, lower uh, value, more than uh, a decline in organic decline. Uh, despite the rosy outlook, there are some threats on the horizon. Anyone who has followed this industry will remember the, the struggle the pharmaceutical industry had chewing through its, its patent cliff. Are, are we now facing a similar situation for biotech? Is, is there a, a coming patent cliff that is going to really impact that industry, or do you expect that to be quite different? Um, well, it's, it's, it's yes to both questions in a way. So I expect it to have a um, quite significant impact. Uh, it will be different in terms of timing. Uh, and obviously, the, and also the competition will come from biosimilars will, 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 uh, will be quite different from the competition that we've been showing in one generic situation in the market. Um, I think with biosimilars, we are at a certain point that. Um, because uh, obviously there's some of the key uh, monoclonal values, key complex molecules, will come as patents in the next years. And I think in the, in the paper, we, we refer to the kind of biologic patent clip, second era of patent clip. So, um, and those, um, and those biosimilars, uh, I find it heavily complex, and we've seen a lot of attention from branded players, that uh, there are probably the possibility to better understand the, um, Game. I think the first wave of biosimilars, a lot of time, penetrate market that really established themselves, both in Europe and, and in the US, although the cost started later. Uh, I think what is changing now, as I mentioned earlier, is we have brand players coming to the picture, but also I think the topic of biosimilars, um, from a cost saving perspective, is becoming more and more prominent on the agenda of scale regulators. I mean, if you think about it, the um, key of uh, Small molecules going to patent already. So the, the, the um, biologics are the key um, cost saving lever, which is less um, payers to try and modulate uh, the other expenditure beyond the kind of formal uh, destruction of the other system. We're in a, an election year in the United States. We've had the Turing controversy and the Valiant controversy, and now most recently, Myelin and the EpiPen. Despite these high-profile cases and congressional blustering, what's the likelihood of actual legislative action on pricing that affects the outlook for growth? Um, I mean, I think there's been a lot of speculation. Um, 
Well, I mean, historically, uh, nothing is really happened on 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 the then the reforming really the pricing rule. I mean, the the, the architecture, so the way structure is set up in the U.S. is it's hard to change. So the only invasion the U.S. embraced in the near term um, in radical reforms like the one we've witnessed in Europe in terms of implemented um, implementing uh, health technology assessment by the ninth um, in, in England. Uh, however, I think things are changing regardless of the election when it comes to pricing. I think that the whole U.S. market is much more aware of um, of the importance of um, uh, kind of funding therapies and allocating funds. Therapies offer incremental um, benefits and cost-effective benefits um, to the to the, to the system. And I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation um, the, the increase in the number of drug exclusions from both CVS and Express Scripts. And that's a symptom that the system is much more prone to scrutiny and uh, to, um, you know, in a way, limiting the, the assets drugs, which are not necessarily cost effective. And obviously, for that implication, price negotiation as well. And also, what we're seeing is the pharmaceutical companies being really trying to identify what new ways to pay uh, uh, for the drugs. Uh, because I think that's where they have to continue to. Um, as a, a profound rethink about it because I think that some of the new pharmacies that have been launched in the market with the current pricing model are not necessarily affordable. Um, so I think that's where some of the innovation, barrier and innovation will have to take place in the pharma world. Antonio Lovellino, head of forecasting for evaluating. Antonio, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Danny. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.